0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Why are you here? Reflect with yourself. Why are you here? Why were you here last Sunday? Or those that were. Why were you here the last time you were here? Why will you be here the next time you'll be here? And why are you here now? We all have choices every Sunday between worship and whatever else is on our plates. And sometimes there's nothing on our plates and it's really easy. Sometimes there's a lot on our plates and it's really hard. But what is it that tips your decision toward worship when you're able to make that, when it's when the choice is there? What is it that tips you toward worship rather than the myriad of other things that always creep up on Sundays? What is it? Ask yourself that. What motivates you? What is the reason? What do you gather with the body of Christ for? I've heard many answers, and some are ridiculous, and some are concerning, and some are right on, and some are encouraging. I don't have to share all of them with you. I I don't want to talk forever to you about this, but... uh, We need to confront, like, what is the purpose behind our choosing to leave the comfort of our homes or the fun or the demands of whatever else is going on around us to get together with people whom we probably would never choose in a hundred years of all the people in the world to be with. Some of us would, but some of us wouldn't. And uh, to worship God. And what is it that drives us to do so with each other rather than my way, my time, Myself. Why are we here? The Economist back in November um, reported a poll which showed the, which we know of, but the decline of Christianity in England and Wales. Historically rich Christian tradition in these nations. But as of that poll in November 2022, um, England officially saw Christianity become a minority religion. First time. So it's now below the 50% mark. It dipped 17% from a decade before. And in the poll, they found roughly 5% of the populace attends church on a regular basis. So if your Christianity is somewhere below the 50% mark, but 5% are... You're doing the math, right? Um, Along with that... Uh, Those who don't identify with any religion went up 57% from a decade before. Now, the numbers are very similar in America. We're usually just about a generation behind what England's doing. Um, And so we know that our numbers are going down. I I researched and found out somehow 80% of people believe in God. I don't believe 80% of people believe in God by the way I see lives lived. Um, but there's still this this vague notion that there's something out there. So at least 80% of people still have that. Um, they say um, 30% of people under 30 years old since COVID have just stopped going to church altogether. We know that the numbers of churches are declining. Uh, COVID is not the reason for that. Um, it's the reason for a very small percentage of people. Um, but COVID was the X factor that just really pushed what was already in motion to the edge so we know that we live in a world of disbelief. Despite the numbers, we know that unbelief is growing rapidly. The fastest growing religion in America is the so-called non-religion of agnosticism. And then atheism kind of follows in behind, but most people are really agnostic. It means you don't believe in anything. You'd prefer to just figure things out for yourself. That is the fastest growing religion. Um, and yeah, church attendance is on the decline. So uh, what I... What caused me, as we're looking at Thomas and the traditional doubting Thomas, the way we see Thomas, uh, what I began to think about was, yeah, I think the church is full of doubt. I think we're full of this uh, pervasive right now. I think we look around and we feel like, as Christians, we're very insecure. We don't go around and, and sing as we face trying things and we, we face a world of unbelief. We're not singing in our hearts, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And upon those in the tombs bestowing life, uh, we just don't seem, as I look at the church, and I'm not just saying, I'm not saying us, I'm just the, the whole bride of Christ. I just look and I don't I don't see the confidence of a people whose Lord is risen and victorious. In fact, we see a lot of apologies for what we believe or a lot of insecurity about who we are. And then we have people, therefore, just like, why do we even do church? I have more enjoyment in my own time And our shifts in what it even means to be a Christian have been turning. And so I'm saying all this to say, I think that despite the belief in the world, the church is equally becoming agnostic and that Christians are losing their belief in the church. Christians are losing their belief in what Christ has instituted as his church. We don't see a church as an actual institution. We don't believe in that anymore. We want to do away with institutionalized church. And yeah, there's some ways in which we could lighten that up and do away with parts of it. But most people want to just do their own version by themselves or with the people that they choose. And this is a problem. It's a problem because Christ establishes church as a witness to the world. But we don't believe in the church primarily because we don't believe, we don't have confidence in the presence of Christ among us. That's what it comes down to. Christ is present when his people gather together. And as a whole, we are losing confidence that he is with us and he's powerful in our midst and that he changes lives and that we are changed by coming to him in worship. Do you believe this? Do you believe what I try to remind us every week is Christ is among us. Let us greet each other. Do we believe that he's here and that he's working in us in ways that is different from watching church online? Or doing your own private devotions and saying, I'm good. I just tolerate going to church because it's still a tradition. Or I happen to like the preacher because he says interesting things. Or the music there is bomb and I can't quite get that in my headphones. Or, right, what are the reasons that we gather? So, I think that we suffer from doubting Thomas syndrome, DTS, Doubting Thomas syndrome. And this has nothing to do with arguments about our faith. Having the right set of formulas to say, okay, I feel better now about what I believe. Nothing to do with that. I want to pick out a little thing that's mysteriously silent in John's account of Thomas here. And uh, then we will we will go. Okay, so verse 24. This is John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Um, I don't really know why he's called the twin. I've looked at that in the past, and I don't remember anything being satisfactory. But he apparently was a twin, maybe. Or, how about this? He's your twin. And you're supposed to see, you're supposed to see yourself. Thomas is your twin. He was not with the twelve when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, when they did see Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, nah, you haven't seen him, right? He can't believe that Jesus has come out of the grave. So unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger to the mark of the nails and place my hand in the side, I will never believe unless I have something to hold on to. I will never believe. So eight days later in verse 26, so that's a way of saying, so we know that in the previous verses, when Jesus came out of the grave, he then visited the disciples in a locked room and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And they were amazed to see that he was alive. And he breathed on them, and gave them the Holy Spirit. That was the Sunday after his resurrection or the evening of his resurrection. So that was Easter night. Eight days later is the next Sunday. By reckoning of their counting, you count Sunday, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 7, and then you count the next Sunday. So that's eight days later is how they count that. So it's, it's it's the replay of what they were doing the last Sunday night. They're together again. But this time, Thomas is with them. And Jesus knows. The risen Lord doesn't have to be in the room to know what was said. He's everywhere present filling all things. And so he knows what Thomas needs. So on 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. So see, the disciples are already getting this habit, this pattern of gathering together on Sunday. And when they do, Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, it means Jesus didn't just come and become a member of their gathering. He comes supernaturally. When the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. That's what happens when Christ's church gathers together. Christ comes supernaturally in our midst and bestows peace upon us. Then he said to Thomas, and now he, when he's supernaturally in our midst, he begins to speak to our specific areas of growth. He loves us and he's going to pour mercy upon our wounds And so now he's going to rub the oil of mercy right on Thomas's doubt. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those. Now this is where John is using Jesus's words to talk to us, the audience. The The readers of john 's Gospel, blessed are those you and I who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who continue to gather together and believe that Jesus is in our midst, bestowing peace and healing our unbelief. Blessed are those who continue to do so. so the reason Thomas Sunday is uh, Uh, An actual Sunday is uh, because how John records it, the next Sunday after Easter is about Thomas. And what it is, is it's a call to the church to remember that when Christ conquered death, he called and breathed life into his people and called them to be his living presence, his body on the earth. And so every Sunday after Easter, especially the first Sunday after Easter, it is a reenactment of the resurrected Christ. The body of Christ dismembered wherever we are comes together as a whole and he's in our midst breathing life into us. And we get to go take the good news of his resurrection wherever we go. This is what we do every Sunday from this point. And you and I, like Thomas, must every Sunday, we must face the question, is it worth being there? And do I believe that Christ is risen and alive, bestowing his peace and his healing in our midst? Do I believe that? Every single Sunday, starting tonight and on until we start the whole church calendar over with Advent, it is a confrontation of, do I believe that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life? And am I receiving his breath of life in me? And am I breathing it out everywhere I go? So why are you here? Now I want to ask what John doesn't answer for us, is why wasn't Thomas there on Easter night? Why wasn't Thomas there. And I wanted to figure out a really good reason. But at the end of the day, this is what I kept reading. I would read this passage through and then I would pray. And I'd read this passage through and pray. I did this in several cycles on Friday. And I just, all I could keep getting from it was because John wanted you to wonder. So we saw in verse 24, but Thomas one, the 12 called the twin was not with them the first Sunday, but he's with them the second Sunday, but he was not with them the first Sunday. And that's all it says. If John wanted to get, to get Thomas off the hook, all he had to say was Thomas's mother was dying, right? Or Thomas was doing an urgent errand on behalf of the disciples or Thomas was held up and questioned about his faith by Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders. All of those would have actually, uh, that especially, would have elevated our view of Thomas in this moment. But instead, all we know is that Thomas is mysteriously present. And I believe that what John does by not answering this is he's letting the readers ask these questions of themselves. Why wasn't I present? Or why am I not present? Or why am I choosing not to be present? Right? Now, of course, life throws its crazy things at us, and we cannot be present to things. Um, A slightly different note, but you know, um, Chase and I have launched the Saturday night prayer, and I haven't been to a single one yet. (laughs) I did warn him ahead of time that Saturday would be really hard for me, but, like, obviously I understand that things in life come up and you have to make choices that maybe you want to make or maybe you don't. What I'm addressing is more of that day, that week, that heart, that person who just looks at Christ's church and says, optional. That's the question we're addressing. What is going on in my heart when I say, I'll miss this week just because? Because it's inconvenient or because I don't like being with people (laughs) or all of these lesser reasons. If we're truthful, a Christian should have a regular rhythm of church. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, we should have a regular rhythm of church. Um, But Thomas was not there. Now, I love this because I think, um, I think that, there's a little bit element in here where I think this needs to be said more often. So somewhere in between Sundays, Thomas bumps into the rest of them, right? He maybe comes back from whatever he's doing, and the disciples all basically lay into him and say, "Bro, super FOMO." <laughs> Big time fear of missing out. You missed it, dude. You, Jesus was here. And you weren't. And you missed what happened and what he said to us and what we experienced with the breath of the spirit of life coming into us and the commission he gave us to go forgive sins. And you missed it, Thomas. And can you imagine Thomas being like, wait, wait, say what now? Jesus showed up and things were happening. And and I was, whatever he was doing, you fill in the blank of what you were doing. And I was doing that. And the, the other 12 like, yeah, big time missed out. Now, when's the last time we felt like we missed out because we didn't meet with the brothers and sisters around the supernatural presence of Christ? Did you feel like you missed out? And this is the problem that I think we need to ask is, yeah, most of the time it's probably no big deal, right? And then we don't really think that we miss anything, that we, that Christ didn't, like, we miss something that he wanted to do among us. Or we forget to just let people know, like, we really miss you and you are missing what God's doing in our midst. Uh, Because, because we actually love earthly things more than heavenly things. Earthly desires make heavenly desires boring. Earthly, did you hear that? (laughs) Earthly desires make heavenly desires boring. And I will just throw out there because this is what God has just been laying on my heart this week in prayer is that maybe, huge maybe, but definitely true of, of us in our world, we miss the gathering of the disciples because sometimes earthly desires outweigh heavenly desires. And then what happens, and I don't mean on a Sunday. It's not like, oh, I'd rather watch the stupid last place teams of the NFL face off on Sunday Night Football. I don't mean like that. That's a pretty bad choice right there, right? Earthly Desire. Especially, it's a terrible game to watch anyways. Earthly Desire versus Heavenly Desire. I don't mean just like that. Bottom feeder teams. Come on, Chase. I'm not (laughs) nagging the NFL. (laughs) Oh, is your team in last? That's probably what it is. Uh, (laughs) Was in last, I mean. Okay. No, that's not what I'm saying, uh, although that obviously is really a bad application of desires, right? Um, it's that during the week, between Sundays, your average American Christian is choosing earthly desires over heavenly desires. Even while we may choose heavenly desires on a Sunday, or in our devotional time, maybe, um, we are constantly in a habit Of unwatchfulness. And we choose earthly desires over heavenly desires. And what ends up happening as we repeat these patterns is over time, the presence of Christ becomes boring. I can tell you this from experience. That I can have really fiery times of prayer as I'm keeping my daily rhythm of praying and it's and it feels like there's just nothing else I would rather do until life throws something in and you can't do what you were doing with prayer. And then your heart begins to fix itself on other things. Very, very subtly and craftily. And then after that crazy period settles down a little bit, guess what I don't want to do? <laughs> I don't want to pray. The alarm goes off in the morning and I think... Oh, that's my time to pray. But I hit the snooze button because honestly, it feels dreadful to get up right now. And to pray, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And you get into the, we get into these rhythms where we actually find Christ boring. I truly believe that this is DTS doubting Thomas syndrome is It is a pandemic in the church. Secretly, Christians find being together boring. They find scripture boring, unless a really hip, cool guy that might say some really sketchy things on YouTube is teaching it. Um, We find receiving communion boring. We find worship songs boring, unless it's Jesus culture or one of our favorites. We find prayer boring. We find the spiritual life boring. We find fasting boring. Let's be honest. Who's, who wakes up and says, fasting? <laughs> but this is, part of the, this is part of the rhythm, is when we can actually get down to, I'm not talking about sin. Sin is one, one major thing. Sin in our lives will always cut us off from desiring the life of God. Every time. Conquer your sin. But on the lesser side, earthly desires, we begin to feed ourselves with this, and now we don't hunger after God. Hebrews 12 says, you remember, um, run the race with endurance, laying aside the sin and the weight that ensnares us. So Hebrews has the view that, yes, sin stops us from running, but so do weights, the unnecessary weights. These aren't necessarily like lust and gluttony and greed and anger, like the big ones, right? This is like just... I really desire these things of the world or not even of the world, like the devil's domain. I just mean created things. I have, I give my affection to created things and it may not be a sin directly, but it's a weight and it's holding my soul down in boredom. It's buried with food tastes so much better than prayer. Amen. Sometimes I I admonish anyone who looks at a, a party around chocolate cake and being alone in prayer. And it says, I'd rather do that. That's, that's some good desire training there. Okay, so I'm going on too long, though. Um, earthly desires make heavenly desires boring, and here's how. There's four ways that this works. First, earthly desires crowd the soul. They crowd the soul. So I remember reading, and I forgot to look up exactly how it said, but I remember um, uh, Sherlock Holmes and I think it's like in the first book of Sherlock Holmes. He says something where we kind of learn about his character. Uh, and he talks about how he, he's really not very bright about a lot of things except for his detective work. And his reasoning for that was that I don't see the point in cluttering my mind with unimportant things. I'd rather have more capacity to be smart in the things I need to be smart in. And I thought that that was really interesting because I actually sometimes I found that I kind of do that in my own life. I try not to remember, like recall super silly things and just make sure there's lots of room for important things for me to remember. Um, but that's the same thing with the soul. We can clutter the soul with all kinds of things we have affection for and love for and interest for and desire for. But if these things are created temporal things, then it can crowd the soul up to the point that the Holy Spirit has no room to move. The Holy Spirit is everywhere present, filling all things, including us and cleansing us and his power works in us and through us. But we see a huge hindrance of the Holy Spirit's work when we have crowded him with temporal earthly stuff. The Holy Spirit can be hindered. Now, psalm 51 verse 11 teaches us to pray this david's praying like i have sinned have mercy on me oh god have mercy on me for i've sinned and then in verse 11 he says do not cast me away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me now that was his old testament way of saying like god's not gonna just like take it out of levi and say that's tough bud it's tough when you uh, say a hundred prayers i'll give it back that's not how god works but what does happen is Levi has crowded, <clears throat> presumably, and I'm picking on you, uh, but he's crowded his heart with things that are not of heaven or of God. And so now the Holy Spirit is becoming this smoldering flask, just kind of smoking in his soul. And he needs to ask for repent. He needs to ask for forgiveness, not because God doesn't forgive him, but forgiveness is our asking God to cleanse us of the things that have gotten in the way and have burdened us. Cleanse these and take them away. And so when we pray that, and God does, then the Holy Spirit now has room to move in us. This is what we need. So earthly desires can crowd the soul and limit the work of the spirit. Second, earthly desires can weary the soul. Earthly desires make the soul tired and fatigue the soul. If you consider this before, that as I hunger for other things, these earthly desires are like restless, discontented, demanding children. Can I have another cookie? No. 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 Literal parent life, right? You've all been there or will be there one day or have seen it happen. Um, this relentless, disconnect, uh, discontented child, that's what your desires are. And you have to keep dealing with this because it's in your life. You're saying, "Can I have a little bit more? Maybe, maybe a little more TV right now." It's an earthly desire, right? A little too much of this can crowd the soul and can weary the soul because now it starts to ask things of us. We give a little and then it wants more. Why? Because it's never satisfied. It's like digging up to find fulfillment for this desire and like digging and digging and digging and digging, and working hard. Now you're exhausted and you're like, here's the treasure desire, have it. And the desire's like, eh, it's only half as good as I want. And you're like, ah, oh, I'm tired. I can't dig another hole for you. Well, guess what? You also can't do. God's calling you to come away with him. Oh, I'm just too worn out. I'm too tired. That's when we find the things of God unattractive. It's because we've worn out our souls with these stupid desires. Romans 6.16 illustrates this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? You, you obey a desire? Well, guess who has you now? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of disobedience, which leads to unrighteous, which leads to righteousness. So it works two ways. We begin responding to the desires of God, and now we're too weary to respond to the desires of the world. Isn't that awesome? But it's about putting these things in their proper place. So earthly desires crowd the soul. They also weary the soul. And third, earthly desires darken the soul. They darken the soul. They make it harder for us to see. They blind us. Little by little, as we give in, uh The desires seem innocent, but as we give in more and more, and it's super gradual, we don't realize what's happened. But gradually the light within us is diminishing. And soon it's snuffed out. And then you're that person who's justifying what has now become a sin. You've got your reasons. Or you can't see properly that this is destroying me, because you can't tell the difference between right and wrong, because you're now walking in darkness. Think of Solomon. Solomon didn't overnight say, I'm going to have a bunch of wives lead my heart astray to these other gods. It was one wife after another that he had to give in to their desires for temples for their gods, and gradually he can no longer see. Solomon lost his way, little by little. Think also of a mirror, or I'm sorry, a window. It's like when when earthly desires, when we feed earthly desires, they throw, they smear our window. They throw dirt on it so that we can no longer see out the window and light no longer comes in through the window. So we're double blind. Not only do we not have light, but we can't actually see what's going on. We're just living as passive beings to these desires. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.8. He said, Blessed are the poor... I'm sorry, that was the first one. I'm always had to start at the top. Uh, Blessed are uh, the pure in heart... For they shall see God. When I'm clouded and fogged over with sin or lusting or desiring things of the world or even innocent things, like I'm thinking about food all the time, where's my next meal? Amen. Um, I can actually start making God harder to see in my life. Because purity of heart is when that soul is clean. It's a vast space for God to fill and work in us so earthly desires crowd the soul they weary the soul they darken the soul and forth they weaken the soul after all of this is happening your soul gets to the point where it's just broken down and it is weakened Um, think of it like this it's like the distribution of energy the more desires that I am dabbling in the more spread out my strength is I have to give a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. Remember, Jesus said this. You cannot serve two masters. (laughs) If only in my life it was a battle between two masters. But in reality, it's like 17 masters. So what gets left? You cannot say, well, I give 90% to God and 10% to these things. It doesn't work that way. Every desire becomes its own God in our lives. Because as we want something, we give ourselves to it. Love is an equal exchange. So when we love things, we are equalizing ourselves to them. So you are proportionately divided in 17 ways. It's not good for our soul. Think of it also as butter being... I always I think this because in the Lord of the Rings, Bilbo says this as he's aging. I feel like butter scraped over too much bread. Right, you should have a nice glob of like you should if you're doing this right. You should have a nice glob of curry gold butter right there on your freshly homemade sourdough loaf. Right, that, that should be the way it is. But man, when someone when someone leaves a little sliver left in the fridge, and you got this big honking thing, like that's not fun. Like the, the the butter's like non-existent once you've spread it from coast to coast. And that's what we do with our desires is the soul gets stretched so thin that it has no more strength to resist these desires or to lift up the head to see God. It is completely broken down. So uh Psalm 27 verse 4 is a great prayer that David has taught us to pray because he understands this truth. So what David prays in Psalm 27 is, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Whoa, stop right there. How's our prayer lives? What are we asking for? David said one thing. Because he also understands uh, for a time when Christ would later come and say, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things fall into place. They will be added to you. It's, it's about one desire and everything else gets fixed. So David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. So what are you asking? If you want to know what um, our historical brothers and sisters, even up to this time, have asked for 2,000 years, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. What if that's all we asked of the Lord? Let your healing mercy come to me. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek. Two things here. I'm going to ask him for it, but I'm not just going to wait for him to make it happen. I'm also going to pursue it. That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. You see what he's doing there? He had three things. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon his beauty, and inquire in his temple. But these are all the same thing. He's seeking the presence of God, and these are all expressed in, in his temple. Where his presence is is where his temple is. Here, yeah, his temple. Uh, Where his presence is, his beauty is. And where his beauty is, everything we can ask is here before him. This is the one thing he's seeking. So John of the Cross, that 16th century Spanish monk, put this beautifully. I said this actually a few weeks ago, but it's so good I could say it again, so I will. Um, Oh, no, this is a different quote. I'm going to quote him a little bit later. That's the one that I repeated, but this one is different. Uh, He says very much what Psalm 27, saying. He says, as hot water, when uncovered, readily loses its heat. Now, have you ever made coffee or tea and you left it out on the counter and you came back to it and like, oh, it's lukewarm? Because, yeah, right? Because if it's uncovered, it loses its heat, which is why they make little teapots for people that love their tea properly hot. Uh, you, can bo- you can brew it in a pot. No heat escapes while it's brewing, and then you pour it into your cup. It's a delightful way, by the way. Um, that, that retains the heat better. So he says, as hot water, when uncovered, readily loses its heat, and as aromatic spices, when they are unwrapped, gradually lose the fragrance and strength of their perfume, even so the soul that is not recollected It means gathered from all the places it's desiring, all these things. When it's not recollected, concentrated in one place. When it's not recollected in the single desire for God, it loses its heat and vigor for God. When the soul is dispersed, it's like hot, the heat leaving the tea or the fragrance leaving if it's not contained. He's saying the soul must be contained in a single vessel, a single desire for God. And then when it's not, you lose your heat and your vigor. You're weakened. In summary, of all these things that earthly desires do to us, they crowd the soul, they weary the soul, they darken the soul, and they weaken the soul. In summary, when we find that belief is boring, when we find Christ someone we don't want to pursue above all else, when church begins to kind of be this background noise in our life that we kind of want to opt out of, the problem is not in Christ and his church, the problem is in us. Because when we are absent from the disciples enough, we get to a point where they don't seem desirable. And this is why, praise God, Thomas was rescued the next week. Because when this becomes a habit, it becomes, why should I go back? I'm doing just fine. You don't know that you're blinded and darkened. You don't actually see what you've lost. The earthly desires never add anything to us. They rob us of everything. So the problem is not Christ. It's not his church. It's us. So here's the one I quoted before from John uh, John of the Cross. See if you remember it. He's talking about Israel in the wilderness and complaining about manna, which was, by the way, bread from heaven, literally says in the Psalms, it came from God's presence from heaven to feed them. What can be better? Apparently a lot else to them. So he says, such food gave them no pleasure. Why didn't the Jews find pleasure in this bread? I should say the Israelites, because they were not just Jews. They were a mixed group, it says, left Egypt. Uh, why did the Israelites not find pleasure in the manna? It says, for the reason why the children of Israel received not the sweetness of all foods that was contained in the manna was that they would not reserve their desire for it alone. Rather than saying, we want manna, they said, well, some quail might be nice, too. And, oh, the leeks and the onions. Oh, do you remember those from Egypt, especially when they were grilled or sautéed in balsamic vinegar? Oh, and then suddenly, suddenly, and this is, this, is, this is an illustration of what happens in our souls. We start to spread our desires. So it's because they did not desire the manna alone. So that they failed to find in the manna all the sweetness and strength that they could wish. Instead of finding what was in the manna helpful to them, they go out there like this is so much work. We have to gather all these little flakes off the ground, and then we have to mash it into bread, and we have to bake it. Remember when there were those chain restaurants in Egypt and we can just go overpay for things instead? <sighs> So they failed to find in the manna all the sweetness and strength that they could wish, not because the manna, it's not because it was not contained in the manna, but because they desired some other thing. So this insightful saint of the past realized that when I don't reserve my desire for Christ alone, I actually find him less sweet. Competition. There's no room in the soul for competition, but the devil loves it. So the devil makes us lower the bar. Oh, but no other Christian takes us that seriously, so I don't have to. Who, where in the Bible did it say that? Just measure yourself against each other. Make sure you're just above the relegation line and you'll be fine. Really? Where in the Bible does it say middle table is good enough? Top brothers and sisters, because Christ is worth everything. So we go and we go and we go. And here's here's the thing that it comes back together with Thomas and being with the group of believers is because when I'm with believers, my desires go where their desires go. When I make the choice to constantly be around the presence of Christ's body, I want his body. Earthly desires don't make all this boring. But desiring this makes earthly desires boring. This is where... Thomas is brought in because the believer said, Thomas, you missed the manna. You missed the sweetness. I don't know what you were doing, Thomas, but it cannot compare to what you missed. And Thomas made sure he did not miss again. Thomas, by the way, you can hear two years ago message on Thomas Sunday and find out the history of Thomas. He actually did quite a lot for the gospel. We never hear any of it in church history because he went to the east and our church history loves the west. So we forget the other side of the world. But Thomas did a lot of good things. Um, So. Here we go. Why are you here? I know what the disciples would say because they told us. They told us why they were together. They told Thomas why. We have seen the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? And here's the question I have too. We often think that the world has the right to doubt our faith. But why don't we ever step up and doubt our own doubts about our faith? Why don't we ever step up and say, wait a minute. Why do I doubt that Christ is present with his people? Why do I doubt that? Why do I doubt that he's working in me when I'm with his people? We never stop and doubt that. Instead, we just doubt the church. The church isn't good enough. I can find better ways to help myself. Why don't we doubt that? We're doubting the wrong things. We need to doubt ourselves more than we need to doubt Christ's church, which he's given to us. So um, as we look at verse 27, when Thomas does, I just love the story. It goes from like absent, unbelieving, then present and believing. It's a very simple storyline. Absent, unbelief, present, belief. Your belief is strengthened by your participation in the church of Christ. It is. And so Thomas participates. And in verse 27, Christ shows up and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What is Christ inviting him to do? Christ shows up and says, Thomas, look at my body. It's real body and touch. Look, Thomas, there's this, there there are these nail markings here. You're asking, I need to touch them. Come, Thomas, don't just see, touch it. Come and feel it, Thomas. Lay your hands on me. Don't be a passive, distant observer, but come and grasp. Come and hold. Come and, and participate in me. And so that's where Jesus says, if you lay hold of me, you will believe in me. Sometimes we have questions and doubts and we, we find things boring or we're not sure. Well, if we would just lay hold on the body of Christ we will find our beliefs strengthened. We will, we will regain confidence as a people and march into darkness and bring light. Church, in other words, the gathering of disciples is a hands-on experience. It's hands-on. The bummer is that we, I was talking to my brother um, this weekend and he said, um, he, he put it really well. He described most churches, because he's, he's had a hard time finding a good church and where he lives um, and he said, like most churches, it just feels like going to a movie theater. Mm-hmm. That's not hands-on, unless you have popcorn and they're all buttery. That's uh-huh. hands-on, but that's <laughs> wrong desires there. Uh, I want you guys to know, and I think you know, but I just want to make sure you know this: we're a we're a lucky church. Yeah. Uh, well, Christians hate the word luck. Blessed. We're a blessed church. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Forgive me, but we are lucky and blessed, <laughs> um, because we have we have two of the ways that church is supposed to be hands on. Thomas was invited to lay hold of Christ's body. That means two things. Christ's body is this. It's the believers together is his body. Are you laying hold? Now, don't go too far with that metaphor. Are we shaking hands, hugging? Are we interacting with each other's lives? A movie theater experience, you sure don't do that. It'd be really creepy if someone just hugged my wife that I never knew at the movie theater before. Who are? Uh, she's married, by the way. <laughs> um, that would be really weird, right? Um But this is the body of Christ, and we are meant to be involved in each other's lives. Sundays, yes, and between Sundays. So we lay hold of the body of Christ together. The second way is what Christ quite literally invited Thomas to do, was lay hold of my other body. And we get to lay hold of this body too, and you literally... Hold it. You handle, I hope, with reverence and with appreciation and thanksgiving that Christ has made me worthy to partake in Him. He told us. He told us that this is His body. I'm not going to go into theological discussion about exactly what that means. But He just made it as simply as clear as, like, look, when my people are together and they eat bread, I'm present. So this is my body and this is my blood. You partake in me when you partake of it. However that works, you can you can riddle that out yourself. You can go and Google search and have an ice pack for your head at the same time. But for now, we will say that. And so um Cyril of Alexandria was a fifth, he's the guy that took over for Athanasius in Alexandria uh, in the fifth century. Uh he he said this quote I won't forget. Christ visits us and appears unto us all, both invisibly and visibly. Invisibly as God, but also visibly in the body. And that is us. He's, he's present when we participate with each other. And as you'll hear, he also means this. He also allows us to touch. So also means in addition to this body, he also allows us to touch his holy flesh and gives us thereof. For through the grace of God we are admitted to partake of the holy communion, receiving Christ into our hands, to the intent that we may firmly believe that He did in truth raise up the temple of His body. Thomas Sunday, He's risen. We come together and we realize that as we hold His body in His in our hands, and and you you notice that um um. I, I have this covered so stuff doesn't get into it. I thought that was a good idea at one point. Um, that the the blood and the body are separated. What does that mean? It's because when you take blood out of flesh, it's dead. So we receive our crucified Lord. But as it goes in, blood and flesh are united. The resurrected Lord dwells within us as we drink the cup and eat the bread that's part of what it means and why they're separate um, so okay I thought this would be a short message because it's only five pages when it's sometimes are ten turns out that's not the case um, alright so brothers and sisters here's what we'll land on communion frequent communion both with the believers communion with believers and communion through bread and cup Uh, It will remove earthly desires. My being in fellowship with you helps remove earthly desires in my soul. And do you believe that when you receive communion, it also Christ works to remove earthly desires within us? Because we are metaphorically and literally receiving him into our lives, and he's going to cleanse us. Uh, Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 11, but that's another study, and that actually might be on the near horizon. Um. So we remove our earthly desires, but communion both with believer and bread also improves our confidence in Christ's presence among us. By participation, we grow our belief and DTS, Doubting Thomas Syndrome, goes away. And third, um, the result is that we will begin attending the temple together and breaking bread together, like Acts 2 says. Attending the temple and breaking bread together. Because this is where we are strengthened to desire Christ and to pursue him. So communion, community, it's the body of Christ as people. But union, communion means that it's also our union with Christ, symbolized and taken through the bread and the cup. So lay hold of Christ's body. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith and see how he continues to work in us as we press in for the right reasons. We want to see the Lord among us, and we want other people to see we saw the Lord, because we saw that church. We saw those people together. We have seen the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.